This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. The most memorable interviews and listener calls from the week that was on Fight Back with Libby Snymer. Welcome to the best of Fight Back with Bob Comsick. Good afternoon. Welcome to the Saturday edition of the best of Fight Back from the week that was. We learned last weekend that Jimmy Carter would be spending his remaining time at home in hospice care. At the age of 98, Carter is the oldest living former U.S. president. He and Rosalind Carter celebrated their 75th wedding anniversary in 2021, making them the longest married presidential couple in history. This July 7th would be their 77th wedding anniversary. Jimmy Carter has experienced an incredible life of service, most notably with Habitat for Humanity for nearly 40 years. On Monday, when Jane Brown was filling in for Libby, she was joined by the Zoomer Squad to reflect on the legacy of Jimmy Carter. Bill Van Gorder is Chief Operating Officer and Chief Policy Officer of CARP. Peter Mugridge, Senior Editor of Zoomer Magazine. And David Kravit is Chief Membership Officer of CARP and Vice President at Zoomer Media. Well, he had a very um, dramatic ascent to the White House because he was a relatively little-known governor outside his home state. And um, he uh, he wins an election coming out of uh, Watergate, I think, with Gerald Ford. He wins the election. He has a very challenging career uh, in the White House, marred by the Iran- Iranian hostage crisis, which he himself always blamed for uh, being a drag on his reputation and on his presidency. He's thought by many to have actually had the highest IQ of any president. He's a very clever, he is a very clever, um, very intelligent, thoughtful man. He had a lot of good ideas. And I think he had a combination of some bad luck and, and you know, inability to execute, uh, you know, at a very challenging time in U.S. history. So he probably is rated maybe a little lower as a president than he deserved to be. But uh, uh, more importantly for me, and I think from in the Zoomer lens, he goes on. We were just talking about what you do for the rest of it. He goes on to create a, a tremendous career, in, you know, the Habitat for Humanity and housing and helping third world countries. He goes on to create a tremendous follow-up career for himself, Um that is of some 50 years, almost 50 years duration. So mm-hmm. you want to talk about additional careers. So I think he, he's a very remarkable man, uh, much to be honored. Oh, truly. Um, Peter, over to you on Jimmy Carter. Yeah, he's, he's one of these um, public figures who, whose subsequent life after he was um, famous became he be, he sort of had a much more successful post White House life than he did in the White House. White House, as David said, was it was just a lot of problems. Inflation was killing America. Um, you know, the, the hostage taking. There was uh, just sort of complete, um, you know, economic and social unrest. And he presided over it all, not very successfully. But afterwards, he became. He sort of grew into the man he was, and uh, became a very thoughtful man and a very sort of um, leading figure in civil rights and in. Uh, charitable works and poverty, helping people, you know, end poverty, and just a very respected man after his career. 
And a very nice man, right? A very, like a very nice man, Bill. Everybody loves Jimmy Carter. Absolutely. He, uh, he was someone who was mired around the uh, world. I think, uh, uh, was probably sometimes admired more by people who were outside of the United States than, uh, because they had not really, uh, known him as a, as a president, but he was a, he was a trendsetter and, uh, uh, as, uh, David said, a very intelligent, uh, Man who uh, is whose international work, uh, Habitat for Humanity, and 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 the other international uh, work that he uh, did, uh, vaccinations for children in in uh, third world uh, uh, countries, somebody that everybody admired, and and even now the strength that he has uh, in saying, uh, look, I'm not going to go through the medical steps anymore. I want to stay home. I want to be with my family and hospice care. I think it's a huge continuing example. And even as he perhaps fades, uh, setting an example to all of us around the world. In our context at Zoomer, with his wife, Rosalind right. Carter, particularly Rosalind, they were very much leaders in, in recognizing family caregivers. There's a Rosalind Carter Foundation for Family Caregiving. They pioneered research in the problems that caregivers face in getting better tax treatment for caregivers and educational resources for caregivers. So one of the many good things he did um, with his wife is right in our wheelhouse here at Zoomer in trying to help uh, family caregivers. Bill Van Gorder is Chief Operating Officer and Chief Policy Officer of CARP. Peter Mugridge is Senior Editor of Zoomer Magazine. And David Kravit is Chief Membership Officer of CARP and Vice President at Zoomer Media. This is the best of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. I'm Bob Comsick in for Jane Brown. We've been learning more about possible intervention by China in Canada's recent federal elections. According to the Globe and Mail and based on Canadian Security Intelligence Service documents, China actively influenced the 2021 federal election and its outcome of a Trudeau minority government. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau has downplayed reports of Chinese state meddling, while members of a Commons Committee are now actively probing the extent of China's interference in the most recent election. The same committee had already been examining how much influence China had on Canada's 2019 election. Dr. Stephanie Carvin is an assistant professor of international affairs at Carleton University and an expert on national security issues. Charles Burton is a senior fellow at Macdonald Laurier Institute, an expert on Canada-China relations. Jane spoke with them about the developments on Monday, along with Stephen Chase, senior parliamentary reporter with the Globe and Mail, who's been working on the story. We're talking specifically about the 2021 election, and we are uh, what we have reported uh, in stories, I guess, that began on Friday is that. There was a concerted and deliberate effort by the uh, Chinese government through its consulates and through the influence its consulates wield uh, in Canada to uh, promote um, a line that uh, the that, that Canadians uh, of Chinese origin should vote for the Liberal government and not for the Conservatives, and that the Conservatives, if they were to get into power, would do things that would restrict for instance, um, the ability of Chinese university students in mainland China to come to Canada and study, and that um, and to make the case that uh, a number of MPs that they have targeted 
uh, should not be reelected. So we've uh, we've talked about um, uh, not only the um, the actual uh, overall strategy, but some of the techniques that were used and some of the MPs that were targeted. In fact, uh, in one report, um, the uh, report talks about the Consul General in Vancouver boasting about how she and their efforts took down two Conservative MPs in Vancouver. Let's go over to Charles Burton. What do you what do you make of these reports? It certainly um, provides some degree of indication for things that a lot of us have been saying over the years about the activities of the Chinese embassy in Canada. You know, the Chinese Communist Party has uh, a Chinese um, United Front Work Department, and this is an agency which has 40,000 employees um, in China and um, in the party branch in the Chinese embassy in Ottawa, which is led by the ambassador. There are also people who are engaged in this kind of activity. And essentially, you know, it's designed to engage in covert and malign activities designed to deceptively influence and corrupt Canada's national policies, officials, research institutions, and democratic processes to serve the overall interests of China. You know, it's a very, very active um, initiative, and China has a very large diplomatic cohort in Canada. China has 146 diplomats here, so one can't help but think that the kind of thing that Steve Chase and Robert Fife have reported is uh, is going is being undertaken by a significant proportion of the diplomatic cohort of China and Canada today. Dr. Carvin, your reaction? There's clearly offenses that have been committed, right? I mean, if one of the things that really sticks out to me is this idea of um, uh, undoc- undocumented cash donations or undeclared cash donations. I mean, that's a that's an actual Elections Act violation. So there are crimes being committed. This isn't just, you know, gray zone stuff. I mean, a lot of it is. So um, one of the challenges we have in this country, uh, something that, you know, consecutive governments have left for a long time is, you know, taking these kinds of intelligence reports and turning them into evidence that can be used to prosecute. Right. And so this is a problem we've had for a very long time. And clearly, like, you know, kind of ignoring these, like, outstanding national security problems are having a detrimental effect because these are things that straight up should be prosecuted um, and and they're just not being uh, addressed. And what concerns me is um, the inaction here. Maybe, you know, I think you could possibly argue, okay, well, the Liberals had strong enough majority that or minority that it wouldn't it wouldn't have affected the overall outcome if, like, you know, somewhere between 2 and 10, but uh, MPs were defeated. But at the same time, the fact is that this isn't, this isn't like a one and done. We know that there are documents suggesting this happened in 2019. Mm-hmm. There's documents suggesting this happened in 2021. It will happen again. And they're honing their efforts. And unless we come up with policy tools to really kind of address these activities, this is something we're going to continuously be facing incoming election cycles, and then that kind of throws our democratic institutions into disarray. Dr. Stephanie Carvin is an assistant professor of international affairs at Carleton University and an expert on national security issues. Charles Burton is a senior fellow at Macdonald Laurier Institute and an expert on Canada-China relations, while Stephen Chase is senior parliamentary reporter with the Globe and Mail. You're listening to the best of Fight Back. I'm Bob Comsick. Coming up after the break, Marit Stiles debuts as Ontario's new official opposition NDP leader as MPPs return to the legislature.
You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Good isn't good enough. Make way for the best of Fight Back with Bob Comsick on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. When our recovering politicians panel joined Fight Back on Tuesday, MPPs had just returned to the legislature after the winter break. The new official opposition NDP leader, Marit Stiles, made her debut in questioning Premier Doug Ford. In addition to pushing back over the Ford PC's health reform bill, Stiles is also making the green belt a big issue, suggesting that developer friends of Doug Ford's knew that the progressive conservatives were about to remove portions of the environmentally sensitive land for new developments. Marissa Lennox filled in for Libby on Tuesday and was joined by former Ontario Liberal Cabinet Minister George Smitherman, Conservative strategist David Tarrant, filling in for Lisa Raitt, and former NDP MP Peggy Nash. There are huge concerns about the Green Belt and the carving of that out to, to the great benefit of some Ontario developers. And uh, now we've learned about this so-called stag and doe uh, function that the the premier held for his daughter, uh, which, gee, coincidentally was attended by a lot of developers who uh, who paid money to get to get into that event. And I think there's going to be a lot of questions asked on a lot of days about that event and more broadly about the green belt, and then also concerning healthcare. And the uh, premier's, I think, um, a misstep with his plan to augment private clinics, which will drain off some of our healthcare resources from our public facilities. So there's lots to talk about, uh, while Ontarians are just having to put food on the table and pay the bills. David, you know, we've already seen a focus on this issue of developers at the Premier's home for a stag and doe. But the big issue of the day ought to be healthcare, in my opinion. I mean, do you think that that developer story may overshadow healthcare to some extent? It'll overshadow among people who have the time and energy to obsess over politics full time. Queen, I don't care if you're talking about Parliament Hill or talking about Queen's Park, it's a bit of a soap opera. And it's all good fun for those of us like you, like my Peggy or George, myself, who get to kind of watch these things for a living and, and we know people work there. Um, most people in Ontario, um, you know, the, the, the Patriot Games at Queen's Park is, is less important than is there action on housing, is there action on health care? And sir, I think we're seeing from the government, but not from the Ford government is, they are delivering action on health care and delivering action on housing and fair game to criticize them, but at least they're doing something about it. And I think that's going to be one of the overarching themes of the session. George? You know, I, I just take issue with that on one point, which uh, which is that I think the stag and doe popularizes this in a way that really works against brand for Ford. And I think it's been proven in the history of Ontario politics that political fundraising and developers is never a good look. So I actually think that there's a, there's a, they're really on to something there. Ford's prickliness on this issue is likely also to be a gift that keeps on giving. So I think the opposition should pound away on these things. Healthcare can be an issue any day you want it to be. 
But uh, this uh, other thing, because of the stag and doe, the linkage to developers and the policy on the green belt, I think there's a lot there to be had in defining this government and that leader. You know, it, it's a lot of people, uh, they, they go to events for, for relatives and friends that are getting married. And, you know, especially if it's a young couple, they want to they wanna help them out. But right now, a lot of people are struggling. They're dealing with the exploding cost of housing and food, and they're really stretched. And they see somebody who's already a millionaire We've got lots of lots of cash and lots of opportunity, and I'm I'm talking about the premier and his family charging people to come to a stag and doe, and then it's a wink, wink, nod, nod. If you want to give gifts to help out this this young couple starting out, a lot of people think, "Wow, rules for some and rules for other and uh, others," and you know that layered on top of the genuine concern about. Uh, the environment and the carving out of the green belt directly in violation of a promise, a commitment by the premier. That that looks it looks sketchy on a number of levels. Former NDP MP Peggy Nash, former Ontario Liberal Cabinet Minister George Smitherman, and Conservative strategist David Tarrant filling in for Lisa Raitt. Fightbacks Tuesday recovering politicians panel. This is Zuma Radio's Best to Fight Back. I'm Bob Comsick in for Jane Brown. Also on Tuesday, the Toronto Star published a revealing story about the concerning number of emergency room closures that have taken place in Ontario. Specifically, ERs had to close 158 times in the past year, which translated to over 4,000 hours or 184 days of lost productivity. The closures impacted ERs in 24 different hospitals in Ontario, many of which are located in rural communities. Has this been happening because of a staffing shortage of professionals, especially nurses? Marissa asked two experts about what's been going on. Robert Aldred Hughes is president and CEO of Glengarry Memorial in Alexandria, Ontario, northeast of Cornwall. And Dr. Jamie Spiegelman is an internal medicine and critical care physician at Humber River Hospital. The basic tenant of our healthcare system is that we provide care, especially emergency care, to everyone that lives in our country and our cities. The emergency room itself is really the center of the hospital, right? It's the catch-all area where real emergencies happen, where you know, people people come in from the community to the emergency room seeking immediate care. And without these emergency rooms being open 24-7, you know, people are going to die and people are not going not gonna to get the appropriate uh, emergency care that they, they need. So clearly, it's highly concerning to all healthcare providers. Robert, Glengarry Memorial was cited as the hospital with the most ER closures. Maybe you could shed some light on the reasons why for us? Certainly. Um, Over the course of the summer and the fall, uh, Glengarry Memorial Hospital did need to uh, temporarily uh, suspend service uh, on a number of occasions. Uh, All of the the reasons why we had to to close the emergency department for a period of time were related to uh, nursing staffing uh, shortages and uh, the sheer volume of uh, vacancies that we were experiencing uh, at the the hospital, as well as uh, temporary uh, leaves of absences, whether that be 
um, leaves for pregnancy and parental leave or bereavement leave, you know, things that happen in life uh, that uh, we try and plan for uh, and some things you can't plan for. Uh, but uh, we, we really did our best and, and we, and unfortunately, an unfortunate term that we, we heard a lot uh, was that we were piecing it together. And, uh, you know, that was the challenge uh, over the course of the summer and the fall. Uh, at Glengarry, we have not closed the, the emergency department and have not needed to close the emergency department since the, the end of October. So we have been four months uh, without closures, but it's been with uh, laser focus and a significant commitment uh, from our people uh, to be able to maintain services. When you're in a small uh, rural hospital, uh, it does not take much for your staffing to all of a sudden become very, very fragile, uh, just, just given the, the small numbers of nursing staff that are already on, which is your regular uh, complement of, of staff. Dr. Spiegelman, does anything in this report surprise you? Maybe I'll just preface this with, we've seen hospital closures before, even before the pandemic, but the scale of these ER closures over the last year seems to be unprecedented. You know, it's not that surprising in terms of the number of nurses that are leaving the system and coming into the system. Like, clearly, that that's the issue. It, it comes down to manpower. It comes down to the finances to finance the, this manpower. I think that's where the healthcare system clearly needs to focus on. And I feel I feel for um, for rural hospitals like we we're talking about because one or two nurses that are down or one doctor that's down creates a really significant shortage in that emergency room for that shift, as opposed to a hospital like I work at, where it's a large community urban hospital where we have 10 doctors on. So if you have one doctor that's sick, it's not such a big deal compared to a rural hospital. So definitely there's a a manpower issue, not only in the system as a whole, but where these doctors and nurses are located as well. And Robert, I'll give the final word to you. I do agree that this is a person power um, issue, but I think that we also need to look at uh, the, the financial issues, the quality issues uh, that may stem from, from that as well, and, and really focused in on what other services hospitals may be able to, to offer if given the financial resources to increase, uh, you know, whether that be OR time or otherwise, uh, to be able to, to keep those services uh, in the hospital uh, to support uh, safe quality care. I do believe that there is a role for uh, small rural hospitals uh, to play in uh, in reducing those wait times, and, uh, and I'd love to come to the table and have those discussions. Robert Aldred Hughes is president and CEO of Glengarry Memorial in Alexandria, that's northeast of Cornwall, and Dr. Jamie Spiegelman, internal medicine and critical care physician at Humber River Hospital. I'm Bob Comsick, and this is Zuma Radio's Best to Fight Back. Still to come, what you had to say about the week that was and the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Zoomer Radio, pulling no punches with the best of Fight Back with Bob Comsick. Fight Back with Libby's Nimer has the most informed guests on the week's hot topics, and we also rely on you for your valued opinions. Here are some of this week's best calls. Pat from Toronto called about the move by the Ford government to funnel some public health care in private clinics. We need information. We need audited financial statements from each one of these private clinics that is set up, because otherwise we're only talking in generalities. 
Mind you, in generality, I would ask the question, would you buy a used car from Doug Ford? And I think the answer I certainly would have is no, because I'm not sure I can trust what the man says. We need some proof of all these things, and therefore audited financial statements and the, the Ontario auditor would be more than willing, I'm sure, to help in this issue. That's what we need, reliable information. Daryl in Toronto also called about public procedures in private clinics. I go to a dermatology clinic where when a doctor sends in a referral, their message the last few years is, don't phone us for four weeks. And then when finally you talk to them, it's months and months till you can get an appointment. The other day, out of curiosity, I phoned in to see about a Botox appointment. I phoned in at 4.15 in the afternoon, and they were willing to give me an appointment for 3.15 the next day. So my concern is that these clinics are going to be using OHIP money, taxpayers' money, to fund the operation for their profit-making stuff. And they're going to do whatever they need to get just the amount of OHIP they need so that they could run crazy with their profit organization. My sense would be uh, to not tax them on the money they make from OHIP and tax them like 80% on their for-profit thing. And I think you'd see a complete turnaround. And now, Fightback's Knockout Call of the Week. There are a lot of great calls this week, but the winner of the Fightback Knockout Call of the Week is Crystal in Toronto, who called with a first-hand perspective on increased random violence on the TTC. I was a TTC employee for seven years on the front line. I was a bus operator, and then I went down to collectors, and I also ride the TTC frequently, um, commuting to and from work. That 60% increase, I don't know if it includes the assaults on employees as well, because those numbers, in my opinion, should be much higher. There's a lot, even by passengers that don't, that, or that go unreported, because everyone's too afraid. And when it comes to the employees, they're not allowed to speak up in public about the incidences that happened to them without being reprimanded. I was actually assaulted at work for asking someone not to do drugs within the system. And that's what had me leave the TTC because my daughter, who was four or five at the time, she even said to me, Mommy, I don't want you to go to work because that's where the bad people are. And I mean, the assaults happen daily. Like I see it happen with public on my way in. I have a friend who was currently assaulted three times this week inside the station they work at. And the TTC is forcing the collectors inside the subway stations to stand outside of the booths because they want that front-facing customer service. That does it for today's Best of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. If you'd like to qualify for the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week, phone us from noon to one weekdays, or if you have a comment, email us at fightback at zoomer.ca, follow us on Twitter at Fightback Libby, and call our Fight Back voicemail anytime at 416 367 9636. I'm Bob Comsick for Jane Brown. Join me again at the same time tomorrow when we'll round up the rest of the Best of Fight Back. The best of Fight Back is produced by Jane Brown, Justin Eacock, and Zeev Hadi, with technical production by Kelly Robotham. Executive producer, Moses Neimer. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.